Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Jeremy Corbyn was suspended from the Labour Party this week by Keir Starmer following a damning investigation into anti-Semitism within the party. What are we doing is appealing to the party and those that have made this decision to kindly think again. I want to make clear to all communities, the Jewish community in particular, you are very welcome in the Labour Party. It is your party. It is the party that has always fought against racism. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Keir Starmer's extraordinary decision to suspend his predecessor from the Labour Party in response to a racism investigation by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and Special Guest Sienna Rogers, who edits the Labourlist website, will be examining whether the party is entering another civil war. And later, I'll be speaking to another special guest, the Labour Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, about levelling up and his battles with the Johnson government. We'll be examining how he has dealt with the latest coronavirus restrictions and whether Metro mayors like himself need more powers. So with plenty to discuss, with two big stories that are moving fast, let's crack straight into the main topic of the week. For over a year and a half, the Equalities and Human Rights Commission has been investigating whether the Labour Party has broken the law with its approach to anti-Semitism. The investigation concluded this week, setting out three clear breaches of the Equalities Act during Jeremy Corbyn's four-year leadership. But Mr Corbyn disagreed. Rejecting the report's findings, he suggested the claims were dramatically exaggerated and said they had been used by his political opponents in and outside of the party to attack his leadership. Instead of apologising, the former leader doubled down and was duly suspended by his successor. This is what Sakir had to say about it on Thursday. We have failed Jewish people, our members, our supporters and the British public. And so, on behalf of the Labour Party, I am truly sorry for all the pain and grief that has been caused. Jim Picard, let's begin with the EHRC report. Can you just give us an overview of what the report found and was it in line with what we expected? It's a very long report. It was about 140 pages. And the conclusions found that Labour had breached equalities legislation in three different ways including through political interference in anti-Semitism cases, a lack of training for those handling them. And um, I think one of the most interesting bits of it is it identified 23 instances in which Mr Corbyn's office and other party staff had interfered directly with complaints. Although some of those examples of interference were where Lotto, the leader's office, had asked for tougher interventions, to be fair to them. There were other cases where, for example... Mr. Corbyn's office had stepped in in 2018 to dismiss a complaint about Mr. Corbyn himself 
over his online remarks where he apparently defended an anti-Semitic mural, you may remember. And then also quite damning in 2018, Christine Shawcroft, who was the dispute's chief from the party's ruling body, sought to reinstate a member who had posted an article calling the Holocaust a hoax, an intervention which the EHRC deemed particularly inappropriate, given that she was in charge of complaints. And then there were also two individuals singled out. Labour was found to be legally responsible for anti-Semitic harassment of its membership by both Ken Livingston, former mayor of London, and Pam Bromley, who was a northern councillor. So you'll have seen yesterday a lot of the hard left were, were saying this EHRC report actually clears the party of institutional anti-Semitism. But I think that's quite a, a peculiar interpretation of the report, which was actually pretty damning for the party, which is supposed to be the anti-racism party, the party which actually set up the EHRC in the first place. Sienna Rogers, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you on here. The phrase that I think was doing the rounds a lot before this report came out was, was the Labour Party institutionally racist? Now, the EHRC didn't say that, but the fact it did find those three breaches of the law is quite extraordinary. And as Keir Starmer was saying, is widely seen as a pretty shameful day for the Labour movement. Yes, absolutely. So, Actually, from speaking to people in the Jewish labour community before the report's release, they weren't actually expecting the report to say that labour was institutionally racist or institutionally anti-Semitic. They felt that that language had been used before, about the police, for example, and that the EHRC would find new language, but equally robust. And I think the report is not undermined by the fact that it doesn't say that, because it found the most damning thing that it could have found, which is that labour was responsible for unlawful acts of harassment and discrimination. That's what it set out to investigate. And it found literal illegality, breaches of the Equality Act that was brought in under a Labour government. So it's as serious as it can possibly be. Now, of course, Jim, obviously, Keir Starmer has been very contrite over this. He has to actually enact the findings of the report by law now and has promised a new independent procedure that was set up. And he's taken a very hard line on this and he told the BBC no shadow cabinet members were to speak out about the report without clearing it through him. And that zero tolerance approach that he promised when he became leader does look as if it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that no one should have been surprised by the fact that he was not going to take any prisoners. We've already been through a similar occasion with Rebecca Long-Bailey, who you'll remember was his challenger for the leadership back in the spring and was the heir apparent to the Corbynistas. And she shared a post on social media which contained anti-Semitic tropes, whether or not she knowingly did that. Her refusal to apologise and back down and remove that post whenever that was in the early summer, led to her being sacked. What the EHRC ordered Labour to do was to draft an action plan by December the 10th, detailing how it would implement the Commission's recommendations, such as, as you said, Seb, setting up an independent process to deal with anti-Semitism complaints and more training for those involved in it. Keir Starmer accepted that in full. I mean, I think for Starmer, worth noting he's married to a Jewish person, he sat there in the shadow cabinet during all those years, and of course the Conservative Party is making this point as much as they can right now, that he was serving Jeremy Corbyn during that period. And he makes the point now that he was saying things in private about how more needed to be done. But it is still awkward for him, and he is doing his utmost to distance himself from that. And although he didn't take the actual decision, apparently, to suspend Jeremy Corbyn, we should point out that he hasn't 
been expelled. He's been suspended. It was taken by David Evans, the general secretary, but it's very, very clear that this was done with the leader's blessing, tacit or otherwise. Well, see, now that's the main thing people are going to remember from this episode is the fact that Kistama apologised. He was very contrite, but Jeremy Corbyn was not. And pretty much as soon as the report landed, he posted a statement on Facebook where he said one anti-Semite is too many, but the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party, as well as much of the media. Why do you think he made that statement? And why didn't he accept the findings like the rest of the Labour front bench? I think this is just classic Jeremy Corbyn, really. And we've seen throughout his leadership, he showed a stubbornness. And that was just part of his personality and sometimes a reluctance to take responsibility as well. I mean, I think most people looking at that 2019 general election defeat, regardless of whether you think the the media had attacked you unfairly or disproportionately, you'd probably just say, I'm really sorry for this result and leave it at that. But again, Jeremy Corbyn couldn't just leave it at that this time. And I I think that was quite predictable because we saw this earlier in the year with the Panorama settlement, those anti-Semitism whistleblowers. He didn't just keep quiet when he could well have done that. He instead chose to speak out and actually make himself vulnerable to legal action again, which started a fundraiser for his legal fund, which actually kicked up a gear yesterday again. So we kind of knew this would happen. But from what I know, the Deputy Leader's Office, Angela Rayner's team, did contact Jeremy Corbyn before he released that statement, saw it and said, look, this is going to clash with the kind of things that Keir Starmer was going to say in his speech. And he didn't remove that bit of the statement. He posted it anyway. And then afterwards, he was told to retract or correct it in the, in the pool clip that he did for broadcasters. And again, he chose not to. I think a lot of people will be thinking, why, Jeremy, why? Even people on the left just thinking, we know that this is your version of the truth and you want to get it out there. But realistically, there's no prospect of you changing your legacy at this point. The EHRC report is damning and you probably should have just accepted it and left it to move on. Because politically, this is not going to end well for the Labour left and the party. I mean, I've been getting lots of emails from members saying they're leaving. That's not a good thing for the Labour left. MPs who have suffered from anti-Semitic abuse also didn't have much sympathy for what Jeremy Corbyn said. One of them, the veteran Dame Margaret Hodge, told this to the BBC. I mean, I think uh, the statement that uh, Jeremy chose to put out today demonstrates that he is in permanent denial about the uh, extent of the problem that uh, emerged during his leadership. Um, And uh, even when the evidence is placed in front of him, he fails really to understand the uh, importance and severity of it. Jim, what do you make of that charge? And as Sienna said, there was this sense yesterday, it was Jeremy being Jeremy. And when you read these books that have come out about his time as Labour Party leader, there were plenty on the Labour left, people like the Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell, then chair of the Labour Party, Ian Levy, who wanted Corbyn just to apologise and move on. But there's something about this issue that brings out a belligerence in him that means he just can't do it, even when his allies and comrades are telling him that he just needs to cut his losses. Yeah, he has been a protester most of his life. He has been, you know, anti what he would see as the man. He has been, in his worldview, you know, the champion of the oppressed. 
And so he just cannot see that he could possibly be, in this instance, on the wrong side of sort of moral or ethical arguments. It's like a massive blind spot in his personality. And we know he's stubborn because you think about one year into his leadership, there was an uprising by MPs and two thirds of the parliamentary Labour Party begged him to go. There were 60 or 70 resignations and still he ploughed on. In other ways, this might not end as people expect because actually he might come back into the fold relatively quickly. All they have to do is agree some form of words where he apologises and actually they can move on and the civil war can be averted. Knowing what we know about Jeremy Corbyn's personality, is he really going to, through gritted teeth, agree to some form of words and heals this division with some kind of words he doesn't necessarily agree with, but just to close it down, maybe he won't and maybe he will get end up getting expelled. I mean, I don't think necessarily that's the only way that this row is going to be de-escalated. At the moment, there's this huge row within the party and we saw it in the uh, Labour National Executive Committee, NEC meeting last night, which is basically over how this suspension has taken place. So David Evans says that he made the personal decision to do that. That in itself is questioned as to whether it's in the rules, because NEC members on the left say that they've been given guidance that shows that he can't do that. And then there's the fact that they won't tell us as journalists and they won't tell NEC members what exact rule Jeremy Corbyn has broken. We don't know whether it's because of anti-Semitism or bringing the party into disrepute. There are various options there about what this suspension could be about, and there's no transparency. And to some members on the left, they're looking at the EHRC report, which says, number one, don't politically interfere with anti-Semitism complaints. Number two, have more transparency around what's happening, what the complaint is for. So this is going to be challenged by some NEC members. And some people are hoping that it could actually be overturned by the ruling body in a couple of weeks' time. Now, of course, Jim, obviously in the early 90s, Tony Blair changed the Labour Party constitution to remove Clause 4 that pledged to nationalise most of British industry. And it was seen as a big moment when the party moved from a sort of socialist left-wing movement to a more social democratic movement. Comparisons are also being drawn with the battles Neil Kinnock had in the 1980s when he was rooting out the militant tendency of Trotskyites within the party. Do you think this is going to descend into a kind of civil war between the left of the party, which until now has broadly been on side with Keir Starmer's leadership and has gone along with things he's done, even though he's not really on side? Or will it just wither away and show the left's influence has kind of really gone within the party? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's been fascinating with Keir Starmer is almost the second he attained the leadership, he got rid of about a dozen left-wing members of the shadow cabinet, only kept a couple. He moved ruthlessly to get rid of Rebecca Long-Bailey. This is possibly a bit obscure for our listeners, but there was a rebellion two weeks ago where half a dozen Labour front benches resigned because he abstained over this issue of allowing undercover officers to commit crimes with impunity. He really is a much more centrist figure than anyone thought six months ago or a year ago. I think the jury is still out on where he is economically, and it's still conceivable that he will eventually, when he shows his hand on economic policy, and bear in mind that we don't know any of their policies yet, that they're holding back until close to the election, it's possible he could still come up with economic policies which aren't as radical and left-wing as those of John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn, but are still more left-wing than you would expect a kind of Blair-type figure to be. But 
The comparisons with Blair are fascinating in that here we have a leader taking on the left and really being prepared for it to become quite bloody, I would say. Jim and Sienna, thank you very much. Last year's election victory for Boris Johnson rested in the north of England. By breaking down the so-called red wall of Labour heartland constituencies, he won over Brexit-backing voters to the Tory party. In return, the Prime Minister pledged to address regional inequality by levelling up the country and addressing the structural disadvantages they face. It was a message he emphasised again just over a week ago when he spoke to the Great Northern Conference. Uh, We're providing cash grants for businesses that have been required to close and we're helping to protect jobs and livelihoods with more than £5 billion in government loans offered to businesses in the Northwest, more than £1.4 billion in the Northeast and £3.3 billion in Yorkshire and Humber. But scores of these new Tory MPs, as well as the mayors in these regions, are not happy. They believe Mr Johnson is abandoning his pledge and, worse still, is leaving these areas trapped in coronavirus lockdowns. The new Northern Research Group has demanded answers from the Prime Minister about how he intends to ensure the cost of COVID doesn't derail his domestic agenda. One person well-versed in this debate is Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester. He has gained national prominence recently for his arguments with Mr Johnson over coronavirus, but also his calls for more funding and more powers for the Metro mayors like himself. Andy, thanks for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. So before we get into this main topic, I do have to ask you about the big political story of this week, which is what do you make of Keir Starmer's decision to suspend Jeremy Corbyn over that EHRC report? What did you make of the report? And do you think it was the right call? Certainly a a shameful day for the Labour Party. I think a day none of us really could have imagined if you'd asked 10 years ago, could Labour ever find itself in this position? So, you know, obviously the pain is not to us, of course, it's to the Jewish community. So in some ways, I don't want to see this become about personalities and disciplinary processes. The first and primary order issue is anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. And we need to hear about the recommendations, implementing them in full. The disciplinary stuff, I think, is independent. That needs to take its course. But what I want to see is the Labour Party facing up to this report in its entirety, accepting every single recommendation, publishing a timetable for their implementation. That's what the Jewish communities in Greater Manchester want to see. And myself as mayor, leaders have spoken out publicly throughout this period that what the Labour Party was doing was wrong, particularly on the definition of anti-Semitism when they failed to adopt it in full. You know, it's been an awful episode and chapter for the Labour Party, and we now need to move beyond it. Well, I think you might be in luck because Keir Starmer is taking a zero tolerance approach and said he is going to bash on with this as well. What do you make of his leadership? Do you think he's a Blair for the Labour Party for 2024? I know Keir very well, sir, because he joined my shadow home team, believe it or not. He came into Parliament having been Director of Public Prosecutions. But, you know, he was such a team player. He was somebody who didn't have any airs and graces, just got on with the job. And I think he's going about it in the way that he always goes about things, which is methodically based on the evidence and the facts. And I think in time, he will be a formidable opponent for Boris Johnson at the next election. I think possibly his worst nightmare. Well, we'll find out about that in the next couple of years. But let's return to now and focus on 
the mayoralty and coronavirus. So obviously, your profile has never been higher. And there was that brief moment last week when the negotiations were going on between Westminster and Greater Manchester over a business support package. Those negotiations collapsed. How did it feel for you to be at that position where you were speaking outside the Greater Manchester Town Hall before Boris Johnson, and you received that information that you were only getting £22 million of support package. I think your public statement then suggested you weren't entirely happy with how the process had gone. The first thing to say is I didn't want to be in that position. Some have claimed that I was using it for my own profile, but nothing could be further from the truth. If you speak to people in government and they are honest, they will tell you that I was offering to help I said, let's use the new tier system as a moment to reset things, bring national and local government together, get some national unity back into the response to this crisis. And I'm afraid it was just the way the government went about things. It sought to railroad places into these new tiers. And the thing is, Seb, people's lives are going to be affected in a fundamental way. We're locking down people's jobs, their livelihoods. And it can't be done in a sort of white hall is knowing best, and we're just going to tell you this is how it's going to be. And I, in the end, just wasn't prepared to accept it because we've been in restrictions for three months longer than most of the rest of the country. Businesses have already been ground down by that experience. And there comes a point where you have to say, am I going to represent the place that elected me or am I not? And in my view, this was one of those moments where I had to take a stand against what the government was doing. Because that's one of the concerns you share with the Northern Tory MPs. They're saying that Lots of these areas have been in what is now called tier two restrictions since the summer. And there's no clear route out of this. You know, when London went into tier two and people were talking about having to socialise outside and not people within their homes, then lots of people in Manchester were saying, well, welcome to our world because we've had to be doing this since the summer. You know, does that concern you that there's not really an exit strategy from the situation we're in? It does. And I would say that the high drama of last week and all of those moments when the negotiations collapsed, in the end have illustrated what we're complaining about, because it was a couple of days later when the government had to acknowledge that the costs of tier two would have to be backdated in in Manchester. So, you know, we've been in restrictions for three months in tier two, nothing. London goes into restrictions, all of a sudden it's how much do you need? And the simple fact that that's what the government did illustrates that We live in a country that doesn't treat all areas equally. It's been ever thus under all governments of all colours. And I hope now it really has to change and will change. Was there a sort of concern from your point of view that Manchester was going to go into tier three, which it was eventually forced into, and other cities around the country were still in tier two and some were in tier one. And there was a possibility that they would essentially pull ahead in terms of economic growth and Manchester would be trapped by these restrictions. Well, I was concerned about the crude nature of the way this was being done because the government is now saying that there's a £20 per head formula for business support when places go into tier three. But you've got to recognise that a city of the size of Manchester, I would say the second city of the country, by definition, it has more businesses. It's going to be damaged more by a crude formula of that kind. And none of that was being taken into account. And if we damage the cities now, recovery is going to take so much longer. But I think the cities are being very seriously damaged. And then we look at something else like Manchester Airport. The government has never come forward with a support package for airports. So I am worried that our response to this crisis is setting back the recovery. It's causing deep and lasting damage to the regional economy. And that is basically 
putting you know a hole below the waterline, if you like, of the levelling up initiative. If the government doesn't change on that, then I think it's going to face the opposite accusation that it has levelled down the country. Because the thing that really struck me about this was the fact the deal came down to an argument about £5 million. To a normal person, that's a lot of money. But to the Treasury, it would not even register on their radar. And then a couple of days later, you've got the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who spent £11 billion on extending the furlough scheme. So the only reason would have been on a point of principle that they didn't want to be giving Manchester more money that would be seen as unfair to other cities. Do you think there's any truth to that? Yeah, but it was a point of principle, even though the numbers might be small. The government was saying to me, you're not being treated anywhere different from Lancashire or Liverpool. And I was saying back to them, hang on, we're a bigger city, number one. But number two, we've been in restrictions for three months longer than those places, particularly Liverpool. Therefore, the damage to our businesses is already greater. And they just would not budge. So it was a point of principle. We are the second city of the country. And the damage that is being done to what is meant to be the economic powerhouse of the North is going to be very, very serious. So it was a point of principle. I had come down in my negotiations because I was coming down from a much higher figure to begin with. And it was the government's refusal to budge that I just couldn't accept. You know, this is a government committed to levelling up. And if it isn't going to do that and isn't going to put it into practice, it needs to be called out for that. And how involved and engaged was the Prime Minister with this issue? Because I know, as per the report, you spoke to Boris Johnson personally. You also spoke to his aides like Eddie Lister, his main fixer. Did you get a sense they understood the issues of places like Manchester and the fact you've been in restrictions for so long? Not enough. And I didn't ever get the sense that they understood what three months in Tier 2 had done. Back in the summer, they closed hospitality in Bolton overnight and didn't at that point put in place any support. I just don't think that kind of thing would happen in London. So, no, I didn't feel that they fully understood why we all felt as we did. And as you've indicated, we had full cross-party support behind us. But I would say this now to the Prime Minister. All governments need a sort of defining theme. All Prime Ministers do. And levelling up is a good theme. It is the right theme for this moment. And certainly, as we come out of the response to this crisis and move fully into recovery, it absolutely could be the right theme. He still could make a real lasting legacy as Prime Minister if he reflects on some of what we've been saying and starts to really put power out of Westminster and into the hands of people in the English regions. What we saw from Downing Street last weekend was a sense that, oh, well, Manchester stood up to the Prime Minister, so now we're going to cancel all mayors around the rest of the country. If they go down that path, I can't see what this government is about anymore. Well, this is something I've written about in my column in the FT this week because I've been told that Boris Johnson is cooling on the idea of further devolution, even though it was a very central plank of the 2019 manifesto. What kind of powers would you like for the Greater Manchester Mayority? What would help you do your job better? Number one is powers over transport to integrate the whole into a London-style system. If you want the most stark example of inequality between North and South, it's to be found in the simple everyday price of a bus ticket, £4 in Greater Manchester, £1.50 in London. Until those things change, then I don't think we will live in an equal country because the cost of transport in the North restricts people's access to opportunity. It affects the productivity of our economy And I don't have full control over the transport system, as the Mayor of London does, to make it an integrated, affordable, 
reliable whole. And that, I would say, is number one. But going beyond, I think we need to devolve powers over skills. If we're going to have local industrial strategies, surely it follows that we need local skills policies to feed more localised approach to industrial development. But again, that's been resisted by the Department for Education. I too would devolve DWP powers and policies. I think if you start from the bottom up with people and build support around them in a more personalised way, I think you just will get better results for everybody. There is so much actually, Seb, that can be done to devolve control of public money we already spend before you then start to think about more fiscal devolution. What we should be doing is setting out a road here for the English regions to take more and more powers on a path towards a rebalanced country. Now, that's what the Prime Minister said he would do. And I think if your reports are correct, that he's cooling, then I don't see what this government is all about anymore. They may as well pack up and go home. And I think there's many of their new Tory MPs who would probably feel with you on that case. I think the financial straitjacket is a real issue for the mayors, though, because at the moment, so much of what you can spend and do is defined by Whitehall. But if you are serious about levelling up, then I think the regions do need to have flexibility because Manchester is a great and very impressive city. But if you look at some of the other metro mayors in the south of Yorkshire or the west of Yorkshire, their needs are very different to yours, for example. And I think you've proven that you can sort of shout very loudly and really speak up for your region, but to do the things you'd want to do, you just don't really have the powers to see it through. That is a fair point. It's not, though, a lack of capability in Greater Manchester. I mean, if you look at the city today, how different is it to the one that was hit by the IRA in the mid-1990s? It's been totally transformed, not by me, but by great leaders like Sir Richard Lees, Sir Howard Bernstein. They have done so much to transform Manchester and Greater Manchester, the biggest light rail system in the UK, we can deliver. And I think it's a trust issue, isn't it, between Whitehall and local government. It never has particularly trusted it, and it needs to learn to trust it. If you imagine an alternative scenario, said back in March, where Whitehall said, you know what, this contact tracing issue, we're going to devolve substantial billions to local government to build up the public health teams they already have to run a test and trace system. And beyond that, we're going to devolve substantial capital to let them create a business support scheme because they know their business is best. I put it to you that we would now be in a much better place as a country in rising to the challenge of this crisis. The fact that we didn't do those things and we adopted a centralised rather than a localised approach is a major part of why we find ourselves in this mess of all of these tiers and a virus that in many places is far too prevalent. And finally, I have to ask about your future, Andy. Obviously, you made what was then seen as an unusual move from national politics as an MP and you ran for the Labour leadership in 2015 to going back to local politics in Manchester. I assume you're going to run for mayor again. Could you ever imagine going back to Westminster in the future? I wouldn't rule it out, but I'm not sitting here plotting a course back to Westminster. Next year, will see me chalk up 20 years in frontline elected politics, and that's a long time my current feeling is that this will be my last job in elected politics. I think the notion that I'm just sort of waiting to return to Westminster is in many ways part of the problem. And it's a very Westminster view, isn't it? It is, it is. And it's like Westminster's the only show in town. Well, I, I left it to do something different and to build something different in English politics. And I'm hopefully getting somewhere with that project now. You know, I fell out of love with Westminster. The trouble with Westminster is it makes a fraud out of people because it makes you say things that you may not 
fully believe because of the party whip system and voting ways you go against your principles. And in the end, I think it leaves people who spend a lot of time there quite lost. I think what devolution offers is a fundamental change to the way we do politics in England. And that is a way of doing politics that puts place before party. Westminster puts party before place. Whereas in the job I'm currently, and I actually feel fairly liberated in that I don't take orders from anywhere. I do the job as best as I can. I only focus on the needs of Greater Manchester and its people. But you know, when you kind of approach politics in that way, it's amazing what alliances you can form because everyone cares about place, don't they? That's a unifying force. And I think this is more than about just building up the regions and economic development. This is about renewing English politics and democracy from the bottom up. And I think that project, if you like, holds out more hope for English democracy than everyone just sort of scuttling back to Westminster at the first opportunity. Andy, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like this podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Liam Nolan. The sound engineer was Breen Turner and the editor, Amy Keane. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.